guys. Um, my name is Lauren. I am a leader in Salt Company, and I am going to be reading um, today's scripture. So if you can turn to 1 Peter 2, we're going to go through verses 18 through 25. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you, are, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Pray with me. Dear God, I just thank you for the Salt Company and just bringing us all together tonight. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to have Andrew here to speak over us and give us this message. And I just pray that you would soften all of our hearts tonight and open our minds to just hear your word and that you will speak through Andrew um, and use him to weigh his message heavy on our hearts. Um, we love you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, yeah, hey, for not having a spring break and for sitting here when you should be, like, partying on some beach in Florida, that was pretty good. So, I'm excited you guys are here. I'm excited to be here and open up the Bible with you guys. Uh, yeah, like you said, my name is Andrew, and I'm on staff with Salt Company down in Cedar Falls, which is a town some of you guys might have never heard of before. And I went to the University of Northern Iowa, which is now the university that our church targets. And I've actually been going to Candeo for seven years now. And so I started going right when it was first planted, and before they had a building— which, time out, just for a second. Speaking of church buildings, you guys have a trampoline park and a rock wall, all right? Doxa Church is winning the Salt Network in the building game, all right? So I've got building envy right now. Ours is cool, but that's not this cool. But anyway, before Candeo had the building we're in now, uh, they were actually meeting in our high school auditorium. And I was a believer before coming to Candeo, but my family was just kind of looking for a different church. And so I figured I might as well try the one that was meeting in our high school auditorium. And what I found there when I came in to Candeo was just incredible. I saw them open up the Word of God week after week and teach it. And as I got involved and realized that Candeo's primary purpose, like all churches in the Salt Network, is to reach the next generation, specifically students, there was nowhere else I wanted to be and nothing else I wanted to do with my life. And so it is so cool. When I started going to Candeo, like University of Wisconsin Salt Company wasn't even a thought. There was no plans to go to Madison. There was no plans. And just a few short years later, 
You guys are sitting here. Some of you like have come to know Jesus because what God has done here. And it is so awesome to see. And so I'm really excited to be here. I'm up here with my awesome fiance, Laura. She's incredible. She's also on staff with me down at Salt Company there. And so, yeah, we would love to meet you guys. Seriously, come introduce yourself. I want to hear your stories. I want to hear how God's been using um, this church and this ministry. And so if it's kind of weird to like go up and talk to the guy that like gave the message or his fiance, like, let me just relieve the presser. Just come tell us your name. And then we'll just ask you a bunch of questions, and it'll be awesome. All right, we'll have a great conversation. So don't feel like you have to have anything to say. Come tell us your names. I seriously, I want to hear your stories. I want to get to know you guys, and I'd love to introduce us. So please, come talk to us. All right, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm just going to be continuing in your Resilient Faith series. Guys, and as I kind of thought this past week about what it means to have resilient faith or like how I've cultivated that in my own life, like... I've just thought through things like, what has made my faith tough? Like, what has made my faith strong to a point where it could actually endure some of, like, life's trials and sufferings? And I would say that one of the things outside of the Bible that has the biggest impact on my walk with the Lord and helping me have a resilient faith is actually reading biographies of other Christians who have gone before me. Like, Christians, missionaries, pastors, other people who have experienced and endured crazy things that I didn't even think was possible for the faith and have lived to tell about it and have lived to say that it is worth it. And one of those biographies that I just want to, like, recommend to you guys if you're a reader is called The Heavenly Man, and it's a story about a man named Liu Zhenying. He was, I think I'm saying that right, he's from China, but he, uh, everybody calls him Brother Yun. That's just, he's known as Brother Yun. And he was born in the 1950s in atheistic communist China. But despite that, he actually came to know the Lord at an early age because of a missionary. And he went on to become one of the most incredible evangelists, pastors, and like underground house church network leaders China has ever known. And to this day, it depends on like what books you read or what figures you looked at, but it's like attributed that he has like led thousands of people to Christ, planted hundreds of churches. But here's the thing, while he was doing that, he kind of made a name for himself. And his name and his fame kind of spread throughout China, and he eventually ended up on China like the government's most wanted list. And so part of his ministry and testimony isn't that just he spent a lot of time discipling people, he actually spent a lot of time in and out of prison being tortured for the things he believed. And I just want to read you guys a quick story that he wrote. This is just a day on one of his stints in prison, what he wrote, what happened to him, why he was suffering for his faith. Listen to what he says. He says, That day two new officers came to interrogate me, and this time they had brought various instruments of torture with them, including whips and chains. Another officer approached me with an electric baton. He turned the voltage up to the highest level and struck my face, head, and various parts of my body with it. Immediately, my body was filled with overwhelming agony as if a thousand arrows had pierced my heart. The officer stood on my hands and feet, electrocuting me again and again. The guards left, but then were called right back in, and they spread my hands and feet and held them down on a wooden board. And then a doctor took a large needle labeled number six from his bag, and starting with my left thumb, he jabbed the needle under my fingernails one at a time. 
They pulled my eyelids, lips, and ears, and other body parts just to humiliate me. I was a half-dead pile of skin and bones lying motionless on the cold cement floor. This man had committed no crimes except being a Christian. He had literally done nothing wrong but worship the very same God that you and I came here tonight to worship and invite other people into that. He had done nothing wrong, and yet he experienced some of the worst torture ever known to man. And what do you think his response was to that? What should his response be to that type of unjust suffering, that that pointless suffering that he did not deserve? How should he have responded to that? Well, that's actually the question that our passage tonight answers. It answers the question, how should Christians think about persecution in their lives? And specifically, how are Christians like you and me supposed to deal with unjust suffering? Peter, he addresses this question head on, and we're going to see two main ways um, that he addresses that. First, we're going to see what we're commanded to do, and second, we're going to see why we should follow that command. We're going to see why, what we're commanded to do in the face of unjust suffering, and why we're commanded to do that. And so the first thing, what are we commanded to do in the face of unjust suffering? Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. It says, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, and not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. All right, I'm just going to pause there just for a sec. Right away, I realize that this text might raise some red flags for some of you guys. Maybe you've heard this from other people or seen it on social media, or maybe you're even like thinking this yourself. It's like, what does Peter mean by slavery? And is he condoning the practice of slavery? Maybe you've heard that objection, like, no way I can trust the Bible or follow a God because the Bible condones slavery. No way I could be a Christian. And if someone were to say that to me specifically about this passage, I would answer them in two ways. There's two things that I would respond to the objection that the Bible condones slavery. And the first is this. The slavery that Peter is talking about here and the slavery that would have come to the mind of the readers of this passage And the slavery that comes to our mind when we think of kind of like that 19th century Civil War African slave trade are two totally different things. They are two totally different systems that do not operate at all the same. In fact, being a slave back then was something totally different. It was something more properly known as being a bondservant. In fact, slaves back then, they were generally well-treated. Oftentimes they were paid for their labor They weren't just like unskilled laborers, but actually trained professionals that held jobs like physicians, accountants, managers, and actually had real levels of responsibility and authority in society. Many of those slaves were only like owned in a sense that they could sell themselves to their masters to pay off large debts that they owned. And eventually they could buy back their freedom. And so if you guys want like a good definition for what slavery in the Bible would be. I kind of pieced this together from some other commentators, but a definition, how I would define slavery, as Peter is using it here, is a semi-permanent employee with limited or legal economic freedom. A semi-permanent employee with limited economic or judicial freedom. And so it's, I think the term servant is a little bit too soft, but the term slave, at least the way that we think about it, is too strong. It's not the same thing. 
All right, so I wanted to explain that in a way that makes sense to you guys, but doesn't excuse the practice altogether. Because while it was a totally different thing, and while it was kind of just like a class of people that maybe were closer to what we would think of as employees, there were still some incredibly evil things about this system. There was abuses of power, oppressions of people, and really cruel aspects. And so the second thing I would say is not only are the two types of slavery different, but I would say that this passage and the Bible as a whole is less concerned about commenting on the system of slavery and more concerned with helping suffering Christians endure their suffering well. His goal isn't to make some like ethical claim about the the system of slavery. His goal is to help Christians that are suffering. Peter isn't addressing if slavery is right or wrong. He's just acknowledging that it exists. All right, and so Peter commenting on it is not the same as Peter condoning it. Peter acknowledging it is not the same thing as him acquitting it. And so he just acknowledges that it's real. In fact, the Bible is very clear in other passages that we should fight against things like slavery. That we should speak out against people that are oppressed. That we should speak out when people are being treated like subhumans. God hates those things as much as you do. And so the Bible is very clear. The thing, when we think of slavery, that is condemned. But the Bible, however clear it is, it's also very real. And the authors would have known that no matter how hard we fight, no matter how many programs, no matter how many systems, no matter who gets elected to office, the fact is we live in a broken, sin-filled world. And until Jesus comes back and makes everything right, and until Jesus comes back, there will be injustices. There will be oppression. And so we don't want to be naive to that as believers. And so Peter is writing to acknowledge the fact that this suffering exists and to help Christians who are being affected by this suffer well and suffer with purpose and meaning. And what was true for Christians in that time is actually true for us too, all right? There are injustices in our world that we will be affected by. And I'm telling you guys, especially as believers, especially as Christians, it's not if we face these, but when. And so when we face these injustices, when we face suffering in our lives, what are we commanded to do? Look back with me at verse 18. It says, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel, for it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Because when it comes to unjust suffering, Christians are commanded to endure. Christians are commanded to endure. Peter tells them to submit with all reverence to their masters, not only the good ones, but even the evil ones. Guys, this verb like submit or honor, it's the word that Ronnie talked about last week with their command to honor the emperor. All right, we're meant to like fear and worship God. That is the highest level of authority. But as Christians, we're also called to submit and honor lower ones, even if they're evil, even the psychopathic Christian killing Emperor Nero. We are still called to submit and endure. And he's not telling them to submit because these earthly matters, masters deserve it. He's not saying, hey, submit because these guys are worthy of it. He's saying, submit because your heavenly master is. 
Don't submit to these earthly authorities because they deserve it. Submit because our Father in heaven, who is worthy of it, commands that of us. Because here's the thing. God is far more concerned with the display of his gospel in your life than he is your happiness. God is far more concerned in your life that you would put his glory and his gospel on display than that you would live a life of ease and comfort. What God cares about most in your life isn't your ease, it's his glory. Even if that means we suffer. And when we as Christians submit to authorities, even evil ones, we show the world that there is a greater reality in our life than the circumstances we find ourselves in. Guys, and this is totally different than what the world will tell you. The world will scream, fight back, make it right, don't let that happen. Get what you deserve. Guys, it's not the same for Christians. We are commanded to endure. Listen to what God tells us in Titus 2, 9 and 10. It says, Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. We are to submit so that we can adorn the teaching. The Greek word there, adorn, literally means to make beautiful, to make attractive, to make compelling. As Christians, we have the opportunity to make the gospel look beautiful by suffering injustices in our life, by enduring through them. Jesus gives you the task and the privilege to make the gospel look beautiful by showing the world that your greatest concern isn't your life circumstances, but it's God himself. All right, and I just, I want to be honest for a sec, all right? We live in the Midwestern United States, right? So we're probably not going to experience like the injustices and the sufferings that these guys were, all right? The odds that somebody in this room like goes and be, and is like burned at the stake as a martyr next week is like slim to none, all right? And if that happens, good for you. You're going to get a better resurrection than I am. But seriously, it's probably not going to happen. But I will say this, in our lifetime— it will get harder and harder to follow Jesus. You will continue to experience more pushback. You will continue to experience more oppression. And so right now, when we don't experience those things, we can train our minds and our hearts to believe these truths and to obey these commands by enduring even the little injustices in our lives. Think right now, even just the little injustices, things in your life that you think are unfair— things in your life that are happening to you that you don't think you deserve. Maybe roommates aren't pulling their weight around the house. Maybe gossip has been spread about you. Bosses that don't seem fair. Parents that seem unreasonable. I don't know what it is. Think about the injustices in your life right now or the things that are happening to you that you don't think you deserve. And I'm telling you right now, you have the opportunity to make the gospel look beautiful by enduring by not fighting back, but actually enduring those things and showing grace and forgiveness. You have the ability to make the gospel if you obey our command to endure. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, For what credit is there if you do wrong and are beaten and you endure it? 
All right, so it's not just any type of suffering that God cares about. It's not just any type of suffering that brings a reward, right? It's not pointless suffering. And it's not suffering if you guys do something wrong. And so if you guys go out of here tonight and you go like you're hanging out on State Street or walking down or whatever, and you get beat up and you come to me and you're like, oh my gosh, Andrew, I just got beat up on State Street. First of all, that's concerning. Second of all, I'd be like, oh my gosh, guys, I'm so sorry, what happened? If the next thing out of your mouth is, well, there was like this big scary looking guy. He was keeping to himself. He didn't like bother me at all, but... I went up to him, and, and then I called his mom a tramp, and then I punched him in the face, and then he beat me up. Am I going to have any sympathy for you guys? Like, no, that makes total sense, all right? You bore the consequences. If you guys said the same thing to me, like, I would probably beat you up too, all right? It just, you don't talk about my mom like that. I'm just kidding. I would not beat anybody up. Look at me. I would have Ronnie beat somebody up for me, am I right? See, that dude's a tank. If I've got to go to a fight, I'm bringing Ronnie. I'm not going myself. So anyway, the point is that though, right? It does no good if we suffer just consequences for things that we do wrong, right? And so it's not pointless suffering, and it's not suffering because we've done something wrong. It's suffering for if you've done something good. For what about your faith in Jesus? Then you get persecuted. When you're standing up for what is right, then you face wrong. That's the type of suffering that God blesses. Our God is a God who sees his suffering servants and he promises to bless them. In fact, he says it twice in both 19 and 20. Do you trust that promise? Do you trust that when you endure unjust suffering in your life, that our God will repay you in the next? He doesn't call us to purposeless suffering. He promises to give us a reward. Because if we're going to have resilient faith, If we're going to have a faith that's resilient, that can stand the test of trials, it's not going to come from tenacity in yourself. It's going to come from trust in a God who follows through on his promises. We are commanded to suffer unjustly as Christians, which begs the question, why? Why would we suffer unjustly? Why are we commanded to do something that seems so outrageous, that doesn't seem like a natural gut reaction to us? Why would God give us such a command, and why is it even worth following? Look with me at verse 21. He says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As a Christian, this type of suffering isn't an inconvenience, it's a calling unjust, undeserved suffering isn't an inconvenience, it's a calling. It's not just something for like the unfortunate Christians that happen to run into some suffering or persecution. And it's not just something for like the super Christians who take the gospel to a hostile nation and get persecuted there. No, this type of suffering is actually a call in the life of every single believer. And in 21, we see that we are called to this because Christ was called to it first. Because Christ suffered for you, and he suffered as your example. Or to say that a different way, Christ suffered ahead of you as your example, and Christ suffered instead of you as your substitution. And both of those things are crucial to understanding why we should obey this command to endure. Because Christ suffered ahead of us, and Christ suffered instead of us. 
And I'm going to unpack what Peter meant by both of those things. And so let's first look at how Jesus suffered ahead of us as our example. Look at with me at verse 22. It says, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Guys, Jesus was perfect. No sin in his life, no lies in his mouth, not one single act of disobedience his entire life. He was perfect, holy, spotless, and blameless, and yet he was betrayed. He was mocked. He was spit on, beaten, and eventually crucified on the cross as if he was the worst of criminals. It was the most unjust killing in the history of mankind. The most unjust act to ever happen in the history of mankind was the killing of the innocent God-man by the sinners that he came to save. The most unjust thing to ever happen happened to Jesus on the cross. But what was his response to it? What did it say in 23? It said he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The example that Jesus sets for us in his unjust suffering is to trust the God of justice. Jesus sets the example for us to trust the God of justice because here's what Jesus knew. Here's what he was entrusting. Jesus knew that all sin, that all injustice is taken care of in one of two ways, either on the cross of Christ or in hell forever, and we can't do anything to improve upon either one of those things. That's a John Piper quote. All sin, all evil, all injustice is dealt with in one or two ways, either on the cross of Christ or in hell forever, and there's nothing that you and I can do to improve upon that justice. Jesus knew that all injustice, all abuses, all misuse of power, everything that was happening to him has already been dealt with. Guys, there is nothing left for us to do. God has poured out his judgment and he has poured out his justice and Jesus trusted his father's judgment on the cross. Justice ultimately isn't a court issue. It's a cross issue. It's not dealt with in a system or a government. It's dealt with by a God on a cross. And when you endure unjust suffering in your life, when you endure through these things, what your life screams to the world around you is that I trust in Jesus. I trust in what happened on the cross. I trust my God when he says he has dealt with everything already. There's nothing more that I can do. When we suffer injustices, we show the world that our greatest joy isn't in life's circumstances, but it is in God himself. Do you trust that Jesus has already dealt with the injustices in your life because he has? Jesus entrusted himself to that reality when he was waiting to be crucified, and we can follow that example. 
But Jesus did far more than just go ahead of us and give us an example to follow. Look at verse 24. It only gets better from here. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, so that dying to sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Guys, Jesus didn't just suffer ahead of us. He suffered instead of us. Jesus was our substitute. This is what we mean when you hear the really common phrase that Jesus died on the cross for you. We mean that he himself bore our sins in his body. That when he died, he took all of your guilt and all of your disobedience and all of your shame and all of your rebellion on himself as if it were his own. He who knew no sin, he who committed no sin, became sin not only for us, but instead of us. And on that day when he died, he brought all of those things to the grave with him. And three days later, when he came back to life, he left them all there. And this changes everything, you guys. What Jesus did on that Christ changes not just our eternal life, but our everyday life. Because the greatest act of injustice in our lives isn't anything that's been done to us, but what we've done to God. The most unjust, the most unfair, the most undeserving thing in your life isn't anything that has happened to you, but it's what we've done to God. Because from the very day we are born, we reject his loving authority in his life. We rebel against him and we disobey his commands and we run away. And yet, Jesus' response, not just to the injustice of the people that crucified him, but the injustice of you and me towards him, wasn't to give us what we deserve, but was to die in our place. Jesus' response to your injustice towards him is to die as if it were his own. Guys, and if this seems impossible to you, to endure this type of suffering, to like live this life that Jesus is calling us to, I just want you guys to take a moment and rest and realize that Jesus has already done it for you. Jesus knew that we would have no way or no strength and no power to perfectly live this out and obey it. But the good news is that he did. And he came and died on the cross for the injustices in our lives. Guys, as I invite the band back up to come play and so we can respond in worship, I want to read you another quote by Brother Yun, the guy that I talked to you about at the beginning. This is what he says after those tortures. He says, During the tortures, I thought of the words from 1 Peter 2.23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I wanted to strike back with my words, but the Lord stopped me. I repented for the way I felt. I started to bless my fellow prisoners, especially those who insulted me the worst. He was tortured and beaten and mocked in the worst ways possible. And his response was to look to Jesus to look 
to Jesus who suffered those same things for him and that gave him the strength to have resilient faith and to endure unjust sufferings. Guys, will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that your response to my sin, that your response to my rebellion and all the injustices that I've committed against you wasn't to give me what I deserved, but was to die in my place. Jesus, I thank you that you not only went ahead of us as an example of how to suffer, but you died